All right. Well, welcome to The Practicality of VR. This is episode three. My name is Tyler Gates. I'm the host of Everything VR and AR podcast um, and general manager of Brightline Interactive, um, also the chief futurist of the Glimpse Group and really do a lot of um, education and sort of translation around deep technologies into high technologies. And we're really, really excited to um, be able to have this discussion specifically around the practicality of VR um, specifically in the government sector, in the public sector. Where is this really useful right now? Um, what should we be able to do right now that we're not? And how do we actually bridge that gap? And to have that really, really important discussion, I have a great panel. Um, and we're going to step through some intros before we get started. And just to kick us off, um, Troy, why don't you kick us off and uh, do a bit of an introduction, and then we'll uh, take it through the Mass Virtual team. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I'm Troy Wood. I'm the executive director of global partner marketing at HTC. And we work with all sorts of enterprises across pretty much any, any industry you could imagine. And we have a lot of customers in, in government. I've been with the company for about eight years. Folks might remember us uh, from the smartphone days. Uh, we pivoted to VR headsets uh, in 2016 and got into the enterprise space a couple of years after that. Uh, now we're into software and um, private 5G boxes and all sorts of fun stuff. So I'm happy to be a part of this today. Thanks so much, Troy. And to, you, there's uh, three of you here, which is fantastic, uh, representing the Mass Virtual team. Um, really, to, to kick us off, Jaime, why don't you give us a quick intro? I'm Santiago, the Executive Regional Director of Mass Virtual. Been with the company for about two years providing excellent vir virtual reality products to uh, the military side services, Air Force and Navy also. It's been a great ride so far. So and, uh, enjoy being on the uh, program. Great. Thanks so much, Jaime. Um, Jesse. Jesse Matos, product design director at Mass Virtual. Started out doing uh, basic CBT development, design, instructional design, sound design. So really familiar with all of the technical aspects of product design when it comes to learning technologies. Major focus right now is developing out our learning management system along with our uh, production tools and learning content design. It's fantastic. And thanks so much. And, and uh, Luke, over to you. Uh, I'm Luke Brubaker, the uh, art director here at Mass Virtual. I have a background in uh, game art and design, but I've been with the company for close to 10 years now. So my role with the team is really just to, to help us push those visual boundaries forward and create the most realistic, engaging, immersive environments uh, in VR. Okay, this is perfect. This is a, a great team here to represent sort of, again, we're going to get into the practicality of virtual reality and, and really talk about what's happening right now. It is important to have head-mounted displays and the best, of, best in class, but it's also really important to have um, other supporting hardware. Um, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a brief just from HTC on that? So we... Uh... Yeah, we started back in 2016 on the VR headset side. And back then, you needed to st stick light boxes, laser stations in the corners. And you had to be tethered to a workstation. It had to be a high-powered computer. Um, and you had you know, the same kind of controllers, but they're a little bit larger, a little bit clunkier. Um, and you didn't have as many of the peripherals, you know, like um, tracking pucks and body sensors, uh, motion capture sen sensors. Um, for public safety, for instance, you didn't have like the Bluetooth connectivity from like a, a taser, for instance, to the actual experience or 
for some of the um, defense companies having being able to have like a, what feels like a real weapon, you know, with the real recoil and stuff, anything with that would send the tracking all loco. Um, and so there's been, I mean, basically you, what you want VR is, especially when we're talking about um, government and public safety and defense is you need the most realistic training possible. The direction it's going is how do we make the headsets lighter, smaller? Nobody wants to wear a big, big headset. You want it to be as seamless of a, and as natural as an experience as possible. Um, you also want to be able to just use your hands for intuitive, you know, hand gestures, have good hand tracking, be able to engage with menus and objects like you would in, um, in the physical world. Um, and you also want uh, privacy and security. Like that's a huge differentiation for HTC is that we're not you know, we're, we're owned, it's, it's a Taiwanese company. We have all the TAA and ISO certifications. Um, we don't monetize anybody's um, info, like the people aren't the product. Uh, so we don't capture any, we don't require a social login. You know, there's, there's some folks that just can't work in the DFD space, for instance, just because of where they're based. Um, and so we're dialing in on, on making it as natural as possible, as secure as possible. Also, it's all about if you want lighter, smaller headsets, then you need to have, um, you need to offload that compute power. And so we're working with a lot of the carriers and the uh, edge um, compute companies. And also we have our own private 5G um, box solution. We're basically going into all these different industries, healthcare, government, aerospace, automotive, um, education, and we're seeing how they work and which systems and platforms they work with. And we're focused on being open and interoperable so that it vibes with their existing solutions. Yeah, that's a perfect setup. And it's really helpful to even just, uh, you, you mentioned a couple of the major sort of um, sort of milestones, even just in immersive technology as, as it relates to the public sector. And there have been many, I mean, in terms of really just the early days understanding that you can uh, transport somebody from uh, one environment to another, and, and then you can do that interactively, and then you can do that with multiple people, and then you can do that, you know, uh, across different environments, and then you talk about disaggregating the compute, and it really does, I mean, you're starting to set us up in terms of where we are right now. Um, Jaime, I, I know that um, you've spent um, uh, a, a bit of time in this space, uh, in uh, training and simulation and education, uh, both um, at Mass Virtual as, as well as uh, with a military background, and um, and so, you know, really even just on the customer side, um, you 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 can see both sides of these of of this of this overall challenge and of, of the space. And it was, uh, if if we could start out just with your overall maybe high level understanding of um, what's what where is virtual reality practical right now? I think what you're going to see more is with uh, lack of aircraft availability, lack of equipment uh, in general um, that costs a lot of uh, sustainment dollars to maintain. Those that transformation from traditional training classroom to that classroom of the future is starting to happen. Uh, and, and it's key to see it in, in medical, uh, like Troy was saying, um, multitasking teams now. As the services get uh, more refined, they're having their soldiers and their airmen uh, work more in, in teams and understand different jobs, uh, but they don't have the time to train on those multitask jobs in order to, to understand them when they deploy. So this is where VR training would actually kick in to make sure that they have that opportunity to train in a classroom environment or on their own or in their dorm or at home uh, to make sure that they're ready for the mission. Uh, and as Troy was stating, it has to be realistic and, and VR is probably the most realistic you're gonna get out there in order to build that confidence, that muscle memory uh, and, and able for them to uh, pass quality assurance uh, inspections uh, at a faster rate in order to get them ready. 
Yeah, I mean, and you bring up uh, a couple of major. I mean, you're, you're talking about major requirements there on on the on the side of the government customer uh, being able to. I mean, we hear these uh, in and around the government sector. You hear these uh, sort of phrases and terms from various uh, uh, different branches of the military. I mean, things like you know, moving technology, uh, sort of speed to fleet. You know, so says the Navy, or ready, relevant learning, also coming out of the Navy, or you know, multi-domain operational environments coming out of the Army. You know, and, and really sort of now we have uh, space verse uh, trademarked in you know in April twenty. 22 uh, by the space United States Space Force, and so there are you know there are lots of these different types of um, awarenesses that that exist now in terms of okay well there are use cases for immersive technology there are use cases for virtual reality um, Jesse state from your perspective what is the state of virtual reality in, in terms of its use right now I mean are we using it obviously you know Troy took us into a little bit you know early days we had base stations and you know we have um, lots of pucks on, on our wrists and things like that uh, but now we have things like hand tracking and video pass through and, and those sorts of things and so what is you know from your perspective what's the sort of how are we deploying virtual reality right now um, where it's it's being used very practically? Well, I think it's actually going back to the start with those trackers and the sensors. Uh, you, you get the best fidelity of tracking. And when it comes to the, you know, the, the use of any technology, I think, or, or, or any platform or, or medium, that user experience is what reigns supreme. And that's what we have found with, with our product and, and our content is the second you create something that doesn't work well to that end user, they, they drop it. They, they don't want it. And this has been a huge delineator for us as a company developing this content. So when it comes to an architecture standpoint, we, we you know, have been sticking with uh, those, those tracker sensors um, and the, the bigger controllers. Uh, they're more durable, um, uh, again, better with the, the tracking and, and ultimately provide the best user experience uh, with our content. Yeah, I mean, and Luke, what would you say from your perspective in terms of, you know, what, how, are, how, are, how are you using virtual reality right now in ways that um, are, you're, seeing, you're actually seeing practical impact? Uh, for sure. I mean, right now, um, the, the training programs within the Air Force have just sort of continued to uh, expand quite a bit. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of just evidence. I mean, one, there's been a lot of adoption, like our, our courseware is seeing like it's growing. Uh, the Air Force has seen enough success that they're continuing to to see more opportunities. And I, I think that's really what it is, is that we're just sort of scratching the surface. We just started with um, like maintenance training within the Air Force specifically. So something like changing a tire or something along those lines. But, um, you know, very quickly, people were able to realize that uh, there's a lot more uh, use cases for training in VR than, than just maintenance or, or even operations because you can get into emergency procedures and really planning. Uh, it can it can really dip into any domain. I would say like uh, the, the potential use cases for VR are pretty limitless. I mean, right now, where are you seeing um, virtual reality sort of take root in that way where it's actually advancing the interface and allowing more people to experience the information, whereas you don't have to have so much specialty in that in that level of interaction with the data. I think one area could be mission rehearsal uh, within the Air Force that we're seeing. Um, and, and it's kind of just uh, taking that information and then converting it into VR, uh, but also the fact that you could change requirements in there and just make it more flexible and more understanding for the client. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we could do with virtual reality in that aspect. What are you seeing right now in terms of the need for interoperability? And I would say both on the um, both on the customer side in terms of requirements, but also mm -hmm. on the technology side. Well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here real quick. Um, something I see and something I hear a lot is, uh, especially from our, our clients within the uh, the Air Force, we hear a question of like, "Well, I, I'm hearing about this new headset coming out," or what about this? What about that? And they kind of just want options. They want flexibility. Like you're saying, they don't want to be locked down to, to any one choice in perpetuity. And so like one, making sure 
you know, investigating and that there are options that meet their security standards and, and all like that. But also, um, you know, I think pushing toward developing to an open standard where it really is like buying a, a new TV or, or something like that, where, you know, the content is developed in such a way that it will it will continue to be sustained and, and the hardware grows in such a way that it can still support things going forward. So everything's just sort of moving toward that one open sort of means of development. Yeah, I mean, it, and really, you know, really, I would say an, an additional question to that is sort of, so what should be, you know, what should, um, you know, maybe let's start with on the technology side or just on the actual capability side, what should be being done right now in order to address not just interoperability, but some of the other major needs of virtual reality? I mean, what should we be doing maybe as the technical community? And then, you know, what should be understood by the government customer in terms of what is in fact possible? I think explaining what's what's out there right now with hardware, uh, also adjusting to the hardware they already have. Uh, that way, they're not spending additional funds on buying new products uh, when they may have hardware that's sustainable enough to do what VR does. Um, another aspect, uh, probably on the government side, is guidance and policy uh, to adjust and to bring in VR more into the military. Um, Troy, you mentioned this, and I kind of wanted to touch on this in terms of um, how we should be shaping and thinking about the future is um, really moving the compute load off of the edge device. What can we do with all of this compute speed and all of this transport speed? It's interesting because we're at this part where it's now being rolled out. We're not doing many P we're not doing many POCs anymore for just the basic products. We're doing POCs for the version next products while the you know ones that we have been supporting are really hitting the ground and, and getting good traction. Um, on the adoption side and implementation side. Um, and so you're talking about compute um, and our headset that we just came out with. And this is what I predict for the industry is that pretty much all the headsets will have to do VR, AR, and MR all together. Um, for those who don't know, I know the series is called The Practicality of VR. So there may be folks who aren't familiar with what those terms actually mean. It's basically the combination of Digital things in the real world and real things in the in the digital world, um, and some combination of that. And so, when you do that, you have like all these cameras on the front of your headset, and you're looking around whatever envi real environment you're in. All of that tracking is computationally really heavy. Like if you're gonna put digital objects in a real world environment, or you're gonna do an overlay, you know, a digital overlay to the tables and the walls around you. Um, Every time you move your head, look up and down, move your arms around, it's needing to take in that data that it didn't have to do before when you were just doing VR. And so it's way more important um, to have things like cloud streaming solutions. NVIDIA has done great work on their Cloud XR product, um, and they're working with carriers um, to enable that for 5G. Um, we have a streaming solution with our private 5G network, which essentially to your point is like an intranet um, that companies can use when they have, or organizations, when they have a bunch of IoT devices. Like let's say you were at a base and you had um, you know, autonomous 
forklifts and you had AI cameras to track the movements and you had, um, you know, trackers on the body. Like you have, let's say you put a dozen people in the same virtual environment. You need to make sure all of the objects are on the same private 5G network and it's all connected to the backend system so that you could actually turn the data into something that's usable. Um, and so it requires a, a, a lot of computation. I mean, we're, we're not short of data. Um, any, for instance, any headset that has eye tracking capabilities, you can get all sorts of biometric data from that. Um, and that can be analyzed to tell you things like, you know, if you're training pilots, will they get fatigued at a certain, you know, number of flight hours and that's when they should switch out or, um, if they're clearing, doing room clearance as part of a training exercise, then, you know, you can say, oh, you were looking over here and you should have been looking over there right. doing heat map studies, that sort of thing. So uh, endless data and en endless options for compute and just like, uh, tremendous importance to be able to offload that compute in a way that the user would never be able to tell the difference. Like sub 15 millisecond is kind of the sweet spot for where you want to be at. Um, because you also have a tiny bit of leg, like almost imperceptible. It's about 13 milliseconds of when you move and the image catch up, catches up to it. So as long as you stay like sub 30 millisecond, um, then people won't be able to, they're not going to get nauseous. Like they're not going to have any um, negative effect on their you know, training implications. Um, and so that's kind of the, where we have some of that secret sauce is being able to tweak the dials on the um, like system orchestration and the network and working with edge, edge partners um, and, and, um, and cloud services to basically I mean, the end user doesn't care where it all comes from. It just has to work. Right. Troy's talking about what the hardware systems are doing and how hardware is is recognizing things like 5G. I mean, it's important to, you know, in my opinion, it's important to call out here that when, when I, at least when I'm saying 5G, I'm, I'm really referencing uh, millimeter wave 5G or sub six, really more advanced. What, what we can see um, happening right now uh, in 5G is ultra wideband. That's... Um, and it's a different experience of fifth generation uh, wireless frequency. And so really um, to achieve the levels, the latencies um, that Troy, that you're talking about, we're really talking about millimeter wave um, 5G and, and really uh, and beyond that. And so uh, that type of connection, that actually changes the way that you can deliver content. It, it changes the way that you can generate experiences. Just my team, you know, um, at, at ITSIC, a, a popular conference that I know we, we all uh, support um, here, a, a big training and simulation conference down in Orlando, Florida. It's uh, always um, right after Thanksgiving timeframe and um, always ends up being a really, really fantastic showing of the possibility, what's happening in the market, um, especially sort of uh, in regards to immersive technology and government. Um, and, and at that show, we, we, were, uh, par we partnered up with... Uh, uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA and AT&T and a few others, um, and we proved out a, a major deployment. We called it the multiverse training environment that that proved out um, leveraging no-code solutions, operating in cloud, and then delivering that content over millimeter wave 5G so that you could have uh, sub-20 millisecond latency on the experience. And so it is, in fact, possible to do, and I'm really just curious to, to you all. We, we are all um, have been, and many of us in this industry for a long time, and we can see that it's now possible that the the practicality of virtual reality is 
not just um, because it is uh, it has a uh, it has you know it it can really service on uh, education and training and because it can really put you there and really make you feel it. It's possible for that and it's it's good for that, but it also um, can significantly um, uh, cut down on timeframes uh, to deployments of new capabilities and new technologies, new vehicle platforms, um, and really uh, the capabilities with digital twin and beyond are, are really sort of change communication overall. Um, so, what are what are the types of uh, you know how are you all seeing um, opportunities to actually make some of this a reality? Are are there customer circumstances that you're working with? Are there particular technologies that you're working on that are sort of making more of this a reality? Um, we've, from what I know, we haven't really pushed too much into that yet. Uh, there, and Jaime, maybe you can uh, uh, talk more about this. Uh, there, there are limitations on some of these locations when it comes to that wireless infrastructure uh, to, to have that supported. Um, again, at the end of the day, making the most solid user experience has always been number one. Uh, any type of latency, any type of interruption, uh, a big part of our product is multi-user capability, uh, having the instructor in with a student or a group of students. Uh, so it, it's, it's been, again, requested a lot and we are looking into it uh, as, a, as a solution uh, within our product. Um, but it's, it's kind of been a little slower to, to get in and actually implement. How many folks can be in the same like environment at the same time? Um, we let's see, eighteen. We have one classroom, oh. one classroom with eighteen. And this is again going back to that uh, the wireless stuff. You know, this this is another area that we've come into problems with in our initial testing is, is supporting a large amount of users. And actually, it can go larger than that. Uh, but it it really is defined normally by the amount of computers in in one LAN in one location. Uh. Uh, so. Wow, you can have 18 people in headsets in like a virtual hangar looking at the same. Yep. That's amazing. Yep. And, and if you had, and, and honestly, based off of just even based off of this conversation, if you had, if we actually, in fact, were able to expedite the process of shifting the compute, you could have thousands. But you're talking about not just head-mounted displays, but having head-mounted displays plus other mobile devices, plus screen, yeah. plus other, other and, and then... Again, it, we can get into the future of this real quickly, but it's in terms of what's happening right now, um, it is possible to have large deployments of users using virtual reality, using virtual reality with other devices that are integrated into it. And that's all based off of the network circumstance. And most of the challenge in terms of practically deploying VR at scale comes with the, the physical locations themselves that are receiving the capability. Yep. And it, and that is because most of those environments, as Jesse's talking about, a lot of those environments are restricted in terms of space. They're restricted in terms of the type of network they have currently and how they're actually leveraging that network. Um, and so trying to bolt on VR solutions to these existing compute and network circumstances is challenging. And that's part of the sort of raw interfacing that's happening right now. Um, and that's part of what creates this challenge that you talked about, Troy, at the beginning is you, somebody could try virtual reality and have just a kind of a, a, a difficult experience seeing it scale. And then they could sort of set it down and let it collect dust without recognizing that these are early stage, more sort of like prototype deployments in 2016, 17, 18, 19 of virtual reality. But it's really now that there's an understanding of shifting that compute. 
that yeah. okay well there's a, this this can actually become a lot more practical because now the user even in your example Jesse the 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 end user doesn't have to deal with having with daisy chaining you know 3090s together to, in order to be able to run the experience like you don't have to have a bunch of CPUs in the room you can have the compute happening offloaded and then you can have thousands of users interacting and then it's more practical to the government customer because they don't have to have a bunch of vendors in that supply line to create that capability. They're more directly engaged. And so there is a significant amount of practicality in really just shifting the thought process a little bit. Um, but in terms of actual real-time deployments right now, there's a lot that's happening where there's a need to have more than 18. You know, and you're you guys are seeing that where the customer wants to be able because that just makes sense to be able to have everyone right. in deployment or to be able to do multi-domain operations or to be able to combine environment to environment, um, to yep. be able to do inter-service operations. And so those sorts of things are just practical, they're just obvious based off of what you're working on right now. How is that? Um, going to address some of these sort of practical challenges that we've talked about. Jesse? Um, I, yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, this is actually something I, I really do think about a lot or, or, or focus on a lot. Um, I, I think at a baseline, it's going to be uh, just, you know, managing that expectation of all these different technologies that, you know, within the VR space, uh, you know, we've been talking about latency and, and connectivity. Um, our, our, our biggest challenge is, again, getting the, the, the buy-in, if you will, of, of VR technology and then keeping them. Uh, a couple bad experiences in VR can be devastating to someone to the point of, I'm never doing that again. Uh, and so we're, we're constantly trying to mitigate that uh, through, of course, great content um, and, and stable technology. I think, I think one of the, the, the biggest things that you know, we're always doing, like Jaime had mentioned, is um, leveraging all of the data. In the training world, you know, a, a lot of people don't just do uh, um, the, the content, or I'm sorry, they'll do content and not the learning management system where we do both. So this has been a great opportunity for us to leverage accessing all of these different things from biometrics, like Troy was saying, to uh, the content itself, equipment, um, all of that detail and information then put into the, learn the learning management system and just have this crazy uh, uh, analysis of what's going on and why. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, th those are, have, have been the biggest uh, areas of focus for us. Um, and there was another one I can't remember though. I'll come back when I do. Uh, Troy, any 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 last words from you in terms of uh, like how do we actually achieve some of this practically? I mean, we can see some of these gaps that we've identified at a very high level, uh, but you know, like you, you really said it from the beginning. You know, there there are ways to actually take the capability of advanced systems and uh, make them more compatible with other cloud providers and by using cloud network in that way that actually allows potentially hardware systems to be compatible in ways that are really meaningful to an end customer where you want to have hundreds of head-mounted displays maybe but then you also have to have these compatible devices that can work with those head-mounted displays on the network because you're not just operating with the head-mounted display when you're really training or doing real immersive technology, you're using lots of different devices. And so how is HTC sort of responding to that? Yeah. Um, so we're in the industry groups that are dedicated to 
openness and interoperability. And it kind of takes a village um, to make sure that there's not these walled gardens like happened on some of the other ecosystems, like on the phone side, for instance, or like what the internet, you know, kind of turned into with um, on the privacy side where it's like, do you want to log in with Google or Facebook, you know, and it's easier, but then now they're tracking all your stuff. Like, so it's basically just everything you could think of where we're not mining people's data or allowing them to own their own profile and have it be private without being sold to advertisers or given over to some, you know, foreign government. Um, we also give, um, we do a lot of custom work for companies. Like I'm thinking of defense and there's a, a product that we have that's called Vive Pro Secure. Um, it's a Vive Pro headset, but it has all the radios and Bluetooth and uh, Wi-Fi capabilities stripped out of it uh, so that nobody can. And even the, um, the controllers are tethered to the headset so that nobody could come in and see, you know, where you're moving stuff around and try to infer some sort of, you know, top secret data from that. So um, it's about giving the, um, the ownership back to the end customer. Um, so that they can feel good. And, and we have all the certifications that I think I mentioned at the top, ISO and TAA and a bunch right. of other three-letter three, three letter acronyms. Hmm. Um, but it's um, ensuring the privacy and security um, and also being open um, on the architecture side and on the um, development side to where, you know, if somebody doesn't want to use our headset because they have this other one, but they want to still access the same content and other people want to have ours because it's good for you know, certain things, then we want to be open to that. We know that for end customers, like customization and um, you know, just the reality of dirt deployments is that um, it's only going to work to the extent that people use it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned really um, being able just even to have those compliances. We're talking about the difference between uh, making prototypes or demonstrations and actually doing a, a, a scaled deployment. And so a scaled deployment requires those sorts of certifications. There have to be export controls in place in order for you to do work with the United States government. Um, and so all of this is really important when you talk about scale, when we talk about um, the maturity of this market. And that's what I believe is, um, you know, what I what I believe is an important takeaway is, is that the practicality of virtual reality right now is is very apparent and it's it's very practical in a in a great many capacities. Uh, now, the question is, um, how does it scale? Um, I, I appreciate um, uh, being able to chat with all of you on this topic. It's critically important. Um, for a number of reasons, um, as we all may know. Um, and so I really appreciate um, your dedication and time, uh, Jesse, Luke, Jaime, Troy, really thank you for the discussion. This is uh, the practicality of VR episode three. Thank, thank you. you all.